What I'd like to uh, speak about this evening is impermanence and insight. Now, some time ago I began to reflect about giving a talk on impermanence and I realized that it really had been a, a very long time since I had spoken about impermanence in any extended way, possibly years. And, of course, we all mention being aware of impermanence in instructions and in speaking about meditation. Then I began to think, well, why, why has it been such a long time? Because the understanding of impermanence is so fundamental to understanding meditation teaching. And I realized the reluctance I had on giving a talk about impermanence is the assumption, of course, that we all know it. We all know about impermanence. We know everything there is to know. Everybody knows about impermanence, and there's no need, really, to talk about it. Um, and if we do talk about it, probably everyone will get bored because they'll be thinking, well, I know that, I know that, I know that. And intellectually, I think it is true. We all do know about impermanence. Our whole lives tell us about arising and passing and about things changing, about not being able to rely upon anything uh, to last, about not being able to rely upon anything for predictability. We all know that uh, illusions of control are essentially illusions and that impermanence governs everything in our lives. This is such a fundamental knowing it is a life teaching. It is a teaching which teaches us how to live in harmony, how to live in peace. Needless to say, many of us do spend a number of years not actually living in harmony and in peace, and this may have something to do with our understanding of impermanence, or not understanding of impermanence. Now, many times in our hearts, that we rebel against this insight. There are many times in our life experience that we would actually like to banish our knowledge of impermanence because it can make our lives uncomfortable. It can make many aspects of our lives very questionable. In Buddhist teaching, Impermanence is spoken about again and again and again. Um, not because the understanding of it is so hidden to us or because it is a particularly esoteric dharma. It is spoken about again and again and again because it is everything that the dharma speaks about, peace, compassion, insight, freedom, have a great deal to do with understanding this basic fundamental quality of us in our lives. I think it is probably fair to say that if we still find ourselves grasping or resisting 
in our meditation or in our lives, then there is something that we haven't quite absorbed in our understanding of impermanence. I think it's probably true to say that if we still find ourselves fearful or trying to control inwardly or outwardly, then there is some truth in being able to see that although we may know all about impermanence intellectually, there is some level that that insight has not actually filtered down to the deepest levels of our consciousness and our hearts in a way that actually changes our lives and changes who the way in which we see. But to deeply understand impermanence is actually a remarkably profound insight. It is certainly an insight which has the power to dramatically change our lives how we live, how we see, how we respond. It's an insight which has the power to bring about some very immediate transformations, some very immediate letting go, renunciations, and through that, some very immediate freedoms in our life. To deeply understand the nature of impermanence, would mean that the degree of pain, the degree of conflict, the degree of suffering we experience would be dramatically minimized. It's also an insight, the insight into impermanence, which really opens the door to understanding emptiness, to understanding renunciation, and to understanding selflessness. Now, I think if we see that in this insight, it's a simple insight, can actually promise all these wonderful things, we would assume that we would be very enthusiastic about this insight. We would think that we would probably all spend our time trying to understand impermanence and pursue it very wholeheartedly. It's an insight. It promises great happiness and great freedom. And there are times, it is for sure, when we are very enthusiastic supporters of impermanence, whenever we sit with an unpleasant mental state, it is wonderfully comforting to be able to remind ourselves that this indeed will pass. Whenever you come into the meditation room and it's a kind of torture session, it is reassuring to bear in mind that yes, the end will come. You know, it is not so long, it's not permanent. If we're in contact with somebody that we really dislike, you know, we are so enthusiastic about the nature of change. That yes, this, this contact will end, I'll soon be separated. Even when we're in touch inwardly with patterns in ourselves or tendencies that we dislike, of judgment or anger, it is wonderful to be able to sit back and be a very wise advocate of impermanence and emptiness. This is unreal, it's empty, it's subject to change, it's not who I am. In those moments of struggle and conflict, we happily acknowledge the wisdom of impermanence. Peace in life is not 
always a very complicated achievement. There is a wonderful dimension of peace and harmony that is born simply of being able to live in accord with the way things are. As a wonderful depth of peace and harmony that comes to us when we are able to attune ourselves to the way things actually are in each moment. It includes attuning ourselves to the very flow of change that is perceptible in each moment. Now many times we have a glimmer of this kind of peace. You know, when we let go of our shoulds and when we let go of our resistances and when we withdraw our projections and the likes and dislikes that come with them, we suddenly find life is much easier, a much easier place to live, to be in touch with the way things are. And those moments when we are not really struggling with shoulds and projections and likes and dislikes, those moments of harmony really do reveal to us the significance of understanding impermanence. Not to hold on to anything is not to be bound by it. Not to, be, not to resist anything is not to be a victim of it. Not to try to control allows the present moment to unfold. And those moments of insight are often very profound and very deep for us. But it is, those moments may be rare. It is, I think, no understatement to say that much of our lives may be dedicated to avoiding understanding impermanence. Because to really understand the nature of change, the nature of impermanence, would actually imply that each of us would be very much asked to re-examine how we live our lives and how we respond to each moment and how we respond to others and how we relate to ourselves. We would be asked in the light of understanding impermanence to look again at our choices, our values, what we give time to, what we give energy to, because it is so easy to live in a way as if we assume our own immortality. We know that this is not possible. And yet many times our lives may express a belief in immortality. In that Indian ethic, the Mahabharata, the question is asked, you know, what is the most wondrous thing in the world? And the reply is that the most wondrous thing in the world is that people look around them at life. They see people dying. They see people aging. They see people experiencing loss. They see suffering. And they believe that it happens to everyone but them. I think there is often much truth in that question and the reply. So much time, so much energy can be given to getting and to possessing, to taking things for granted, people that we care for, situations that are precious to us, as if they will always be the same and always be there. 
So much time and energy can be given to formulating wonderful opinions about the world and debating them and arguing over them with others. And the incredible energy that we can give through our lives to trying to rearrange and manipulate our mental world and our external world to suit our desires. And what is all this effort and all this energy a statement of? It's not a statement of understanding, impermanence, and the nature of change. It's a direct statement of our attempts to try and make the world solid and secure and safe and predictable for us. It's a way of looking for the reliable in the unreliable, for looking for the secure in the insecure, for looking for the predictable in the unpredictable, for the solid in the insubstantial. This can be such a mission in our lives to go to incredible lengths to try and create a facade of a world inwardly and outwardly that is solid and unchanging. From the ways in which people are tempted into you know, all manner of, of physical modifications in order to defy aging, to the more subtle ways that we hold on to our beliefs and our images and our experiences. Now, grasping is essentially motivated by the same forces that lead us to try and defy and deny impermanence. Because both grasping and the denial of impermanence give us a certain amount of reassurance that we are in control, that there is some continuity possible here. Grasping and the denial of impermanence give us an appearance of safety and solidity. We see the ways that we do this with our thoughts and plans about the future. You know, for many people to see an interview list with their name on it seems to be an invitation to rehearse what will be said, a way of making that interaction predictable in some way. The ways in which we can sit here, you know, and be kind of planning our next retreat, where it will be and what will happen after we've undertaken this one. We see the ways in which we create continuity or ideas of continuity through dwelling on the past. I used to be like this, and now I've become like this, and I hopefully will improve and become like that. Even the way in which we hold on to the last sitting. You know, if you've had a terrible sitting, the way the mind takes hold of that and begins to create the foundations for your next experience in a sitting. It's going to be just like this when we're just the same. I'm always going to be like this. And of course the mind dances even more with a wonderful sitting. You know, finally a breakthrough. Finally, I'm getting somewhere, you know, and there's moments of glory ahead. And soon I'll stop such wonderful meditation. Now that we know, intuitively, I think we know that all of this dwelling and all of this grasping and all of this planning really doesn't do anything at all to stop the tides of change 
But in many ways, the mind moving in that way to make things solid, to make things predictable, to try and control, it reassures us because at least we think we are doing something. We are not just entirely at the mercy of all of these changes. It is a little bit like that Nasruddin story. You know, Nasruddin is outside his door and he's throwing breadcrumbs around his doorstep. And his neighbor comes out and says, Nasruddin, why are you throwing this bread around? And Nasruddin answers, it's to keep the tigers away. And the neighbor says, but Nasruddin, there's no tigers around here. And Nasruddin says, effective, isn't it? In the same ways that we try to, to have this semblance of being on top of things, of being in control through our rituals and our attempt to order our world. Now, of course, we are not in any way alone in these rituals or in these endeavors. It seems in our world, you know, almost everything is subject to debate and to argument. But there's almost this unspoken agreement or collusion in avoiding speaking about impermanence understanding it. How why does it frighten us? Now the thought of impermanence doesn't frighten us intellectually. It's so logical and rational. Our minds can accept this and absorb this. I mean it would be difficult to find anyone who would put up a very good argument for permanence. So the idea of it is not frightening to us. But the actuality of it is emotionally and spiritually for many reasons because I think really to acknowledge deeply the actuality of change we would feel obliged actually to live in accord with it we might feel obliged to let go of ambitions we might feel obliged to let go of some of our addictions to pleasure and continuity and the fear of acknowledging impermanence I think is also deeper and the fear is often that if we're not really in control and not doing our best to control our worlds and our minds, then we're going to be out of control. Or we're going to be controlled. We're somehow going to end up being a kind of helpless victim of our most horrendous tendencies. Now, we're going to become a, a kind of thoroughly despicable person unlovable and unspiritual unless we're really staying in charge. We may fear that we will become a victim of the unpredictability of life, that things will just happen to us and we won't be able to alter them. I think that fear often makes us see or equate pain with impermanence. You know, when we think of impermanence, we think about how these ghastly thoughts come up, you know, about loss and separation and rejection and death and deprivation and being out of control. I think sometimes we forget how much the understanding of impermanence is actually a celebration of life. How much it actually teaches us to be present to be filled with appreciation, to be so immediate in our appreciation of what each moment brings to us 
that it's a teaching that really teaches us to take nothing for granted, to really understand the uniqueness and the preciousness of each moment, of each contact, of each interaction, of each breath, of each sensation. Truly, the understanding of impermanence is a celebration of what life actually is. But we don't always see that. What we tend to see are more the kind of uh, ways in which we are going to be negatively affected by change. And then it's no wonder that we struggle so heroically to try and make things solid and continuous and predictable. There's a story I read in the newspaper recently about... um, a, a funeral in Romania, and this is not a Nelson story, where this, there was this funeral taking place, and they were carrying this coffin to the graveyard. And the people who were carrying the coffin suddenly heard these noises from inside the coffin. They were a little surprised, and they put the coffin down. And after hearing a few more noises, they decided they'd better investigate, and they opened the lid of the coffin. And lo and behold, here was this poor man lying there with his eyes open, saying, what am I doing here? What are you doing with me? And they said, you're dead. And he said, he said but I'm not dead. <laughs> he said, but you are dead. You died yesterday. He says, I'm not dead. And they wouldn't let this poor man out of his coffin until they called three doctors to confirm that he was actually alive. Meanwhile, of course, the poor man is saying, I am alive. And then it took three weeks for this poor fellow to convince the authorities that he was actually alive. You know, they'd taken away his apartment, his pension, everything, and his driver's license. It took weeks to convince him that he was still alive. This is kind of absurd, but in many ways, I think we find ourselves having beliefs that become solid so quickly. Beliefs about other people, beliefs about ourselves, beliefs about the way life is. That sometimes to change our beliefs about anything at all seems to be almost like picking at concrete with a toothpick. You know, if you come here and you believe, you know, well, I'm a fearful person. What kind of upheaval will it take for you to actually let go of that belief? If we come here believing, well, I'm not free, I'm not liberated, how will, what will it take for us to actually let go of that belief? If we come here believing that the world is essentially a, a kind of place to be mistrusted, to be suspicious of, What will it actually take to let go of that belief? Now, our beliefs about who we are, think about them. You know, think about the way that you might describe yourself. If someone asked you, you know, in ten words or less to say who you were. Think about the words that might come to mind and what they are based upon. Our descriptions, often based upon our past experiences, the things other people have told us about who we are through words or through feedback, based upon our thoughts. Our beliefs are often very deeply rooted in our psyches. Our beliefs about other people, 
I mean, silent retreats become wonderful comedies when, especially when they end, and we eventually get to speak to someone and find that, you know, for many, many days we've believed this person to be a particular kind of person, and we suddenly find out that they're not that way at all. And how often our beliefs about other people are based upon isolating some very simple thing that they do, or how they dress, or how they wear their hair, or how they sit, or how mindful they are in the dining room, or where we happen to encounter them in the queue for lunch, and how on the basis of isolating these very simple impressions, we suddenly feel, I know who this person is. I know who they are. I know just what they're like. Suddenly we discover they're not like that at all. Even when our beliefs are painful about ourselves, we often find ourselves reluctant to renounce them. Because to have our beliefs disturbed in some way, challenged or overturned, it means that we actually must open our hearts to learning. It's humbling. We must open our hearts to understanding, to exploring, to not knowing, to not having any certainty. This is not what being in control is all about. And so we are often very reluctant renunciants. I told this story before, but I love it so much, I'm going to tell it again, about this survey that they did in America about average Americans. You know, they're always doing surveys in America about what the average American actually feels about the world. And they're often quite surprising because they did this survey in America that asked, what does, it does, how many average Americans have had a mystical experience? And this was done by one of these, you know, magazines, Cosmopolitan or something. And they discovered that actually a very large percentage of average Americans had had a spiritual experience, a mystical experience in their lives. And there's more than 60%, I think. And of all of those who'd had a mystical experience in their lives, 97% said they never wanted to have another one. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is, you know, this is so, it's, it's so amusing, and yet it is so telling. You know, because to have something that upsets our sense of order, of the way things are, uh, our, our beliefs about the way things are, it means that our whole kind of world picture can disintegrate. This is true also about ourselves. We are sometimes reluctant and afraid to have our world picture disintegrate. Now, there are a few things I would just suggest that it is worthwhile reflecting upon. To reflect upon the possibility that the renunciation of control actually means an openness to learning. That really understanding impermanence doesn't mean pain, but actually brings great happiness. That to live in harmony with the unpredictable actually means to live in peace. To reflect upon the possibility that to understand 
emptiness. It's not something which is fearful, but which actually brings great joy. That not holding onto anything at all in our lives, in ourselves, in our world, actually brings great freedom. What difference would these understandings actually make in our lives, in how we live, in what we value, in what we give time and energy to? Now, inevitably, in meditation practice, these understandings deepen and come to us whether we want them or not. Whether we choose them or not. This is, I think, one of the great beauties of meditation practice is that nobody has yet managed to really be in control of what happens. And no one has really yet managed to set up a meditation program where we can be selective about our insights. As we sit, things simply become clearer. The way things are become clearer. And it becomes clearer to us what what impermanence means, what it means to not be in control, what it means to let go of all things. Because we sit and we see sounds, they come and go, sensations come and go. We think we have an experience and the next moment it's gone. We think we have a wonderful insight and we forget it by tea time. You know, we think a pain is going to last forever and suddenly it dissolves into nothingness. We see the total unpredictability and the total fruitlessness of trying to set ourselves against this flow of change. We have a wonderful sitting and it goes. We have a terrible sitting and it changes into something else. What our practice actually teaches us again and again is about birth and death, about arising and passing, that there's nothing that is untouched by this most essential rhythm. Our sitting practice actually teaches us to understand birth and death, that every beginning needs an ending, and that every ending is the start of a new beginning. It's not negative, it's not positive, it is just what is. Now the insight, the actual teaching of that insight, is teaching us to be here very fully, to let go of what has gone by, not to be entangled in what is yet to come. To be able to live in that way, to see in that way, actually means also to let go of an enormous amount of guilt, anxiety, anticipation, regret, and fantasy. It teaches us to be here with what is. Now we learn this in meditation practice. We learn it through our practice. Sometimes we learn it reluctantly. Sometimes we are afraid of learning it. But we do learn it. But there is another level where I think we still hold or still tend to hold ourselves apart from this unfolding process. We still tend to think in terms of these are my sensations, my thoughts, my feelings, my experiences that are arising and passing. There are things I don't want to end and things I don't want to arise. But this way of holding ourselves apart from this unfolding process 
is a false separation. I, the very notion of I, who I think myself to be, who I believe myself to be, I too is not separate from the process of birth and death. There is also no continuity within the I. We see that as the meditation deepens. This arising and passing happens so quickly that there's nothing to hold on to. Everything seems to break apart. Sometimes there's a lot of fear in that. Sometimes there's a feeling of, of futility and desperation. You know, I don't know who I am. I don't know the way what is. I don't know what to expect. Sometimes there's a reaction, well, it's all pointless in doing anything if everything's going to fall apart. This fear, there's a certain inevitability about this fear. It is a kind of growing pain. It is a pain of letting go. It is a kind of growing pain. The birth and death in meditation practice, it actually shows us emptiness. Understanding impermanence actually shows us transparency. Now it is hard to find a center of I within this unfolding process of birth and death. Any thought, any feeling, any emotion, any images, any image that arises, it is extraordinarily difficult to point to any of them and say, this is who I truly am. This is who I actually am. This is who I always am. We can't find it. We simply can't find that kind of continuity or solidity. It's hard to find a center in this changing process. Certainly we, we try to find center and we try to find solidity through the names that we give to forms. We say, I know you, or I know myself, because I have a name for you. This is a tree. I am a woman. I am a man. I am fearful. I am wonderful. This is a plant. This is beautiful. This is ugly. By our names, we try to give a certain solidity to form, a certain knowing to them. Sometimes we mistake those names for solidity. But I think we too begin to see the transparency of those names, that there's actually no continuity born of them. When we see this clearly, <coughs> this understanding, the emptiness of the names, it has a profound effect inwardly and outwardly. It's difficult to continue avoiding trying to control the strategies. And sometimes you think, well, what will we do? What will we do in a world without strategies? Well, actually, there's only one thing left to do, and that is surrender. And this is, I appreciate, a difficult concept to embrace. For many people think, well, if I surrender, I'm going to end up sort of being captured by some cult or, you know, some guru. Or I'm going to end up being a, 
a kind of spacey victim of life, I'm just going to drift around. This is not what surrender is about at all. This is passivity. Surrender can be a remarkable expression and embodiment of wisdom, of clear comprehension, of understanding the nature of impermanence. Surrender can be a deep understanding of the nature of awareness. It is a renunciation of grasping. This is what surrender actually means. It's a renunciation of grasping and a renunciation of center, of the I am and the you are. It means no matter what object we're in contact with, no matter what mental state we're in contact with, no matter the sitting we have, no matter how exciting it is or how incredibly depressing it is, we allow it to be and we let go of our investment in it, that it should be any way in particular for us. Surrender is about an absence of prejudice in relationship to all things. This absence of prejudice is actually what allows the world to arise and to pass in accord with its own rhythm. It means not being in charge. It's a wonderful saying. It says, this path is not difficult for those who have no preferences. You can imagine. Now, it is not just the world of objects to which this sense of surrender applies. There are some important questions that it is very well worth reflecting upon in our days here. When we see ourselves saying, you know, this sitting was worthless, or that was a good sitting, you know, or I'm doing really well today, or I'm doing terribly today, or I would like to be experiencing this, or I would like to be getting rid of that, or, you know, this is the way things should be. When we see ourselves kind of swimming in our sea of preferences and likes and dislikes, it is very worth, well worthwhile asking, who actually holds the likes and the dislikes? Who is actually benefiting from the preferences? Who is actually fearful? of one thing, or desirous of another. Rather than getting busy trying to redecorate our inner and our outer world, I think it is actually much more helpful and actually much more liberating to really come much more to the heart of that sea of preferences and to just ask ourselves, who is grasping? Who is holding? Who is rejecting? Who is resisting? Who's really looking for continuity and solidity? So many of these things that we experience in a day, our preferences and our likes and dislikes and our resistances and our grasping, actually we should welcome them. We should welcome them wholeheartedly. Because seen with the eye of wisdom, seen in the light of awareness, all of this 
all of these changes, all of these fluctuations, all of this being for and against, seen in the light of awareness, they actually reveal the nature of emptiness. So be glad. You know, next time you see yourself saying, I should be like this, or you should be like that, or, you know, I am, or I used to be, or I want to be, be happy. See, clearly, this actually reveals to us the emptiness of self and also the emptiness of separation. Surrender is a renunciation of our demands for control. It is an expression of a true willingness to live in accord with what is. The seeing that I arises in relationship to objects and conditioned is conditioned by the dance of grasping. There is no lack of clarity in surrender, but more it reveals the transparency of our constructions. Not able to define what I am, it becomes exceedingly difficult to define who you are not willing to grasp hold of likes and dislikes. The openness of each moment, the preciousness of each moment, the uniqueness of each moment is so much revealed to us. This is not a difficult practice. It is not a difficult practice. It actually simply asks of us a real wholeheartedness and willingness to see clearly, to practice what we understand, to apply what we intuitively know to be true, to be willing to embrace the anxieties and the fears and the apprehensions, and to see how false they are, and to see the freedom that actually comes to living in accord with what we know to be true. One last thing I would like to read for you. It's a great way, isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. May all beings be at peace within themselves. May all beings live in peace with one another. May all beings live in harmony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.